This is Judaism Unbound, episode 393, Israelism. What's that? Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And today we're taking a little break from the unit of episodes in which we're exploring conversion to Judaism to check out a new Jewish film that's been appearing at film festivals all over the country and winning a number of awards. It's called Israelism, and it features a number of past guests of Judaism Unbound. And the occasion of this film coming out is a bit of an opportunity to revisit a topic that we haven't talked about in a long time, which is the relationship of American Jews and Israel. We're not doing a series of episodes on that. We already did that. If you want to go check those out, it's episodes 117 through episode 130. You can head over to judaismunbound.com Israel, and you'll be able to find them all there really easily. But before we dive into this episode, just a quick reminder that our Elul mini-course, taught by Wendy Bernstein-Lash, it's a three-week mini-course for the month of Elul, which is the month that leads up to the High Holidays, and it really gives you a chance to deep dive into this month and into all the thinking and reflecting that you might want to do in the lead-up to the High Holidays. That Anyeshiva class begins in just a few days. So if you have been meaning to register for it, now is your chance. And if you didn't know about it before and you're like, that sounds like an interesting idea, you should just go to judaismunbound.com slash classes and you can register for Wendy Bernstein Lash's Elul mini course. So this film called Israelism follows two young American Jews who were raised to love Israel unconditionally And then they come to believe that the way that Israel treats the Palestinians is not in accordance with the Jewish values with which they were raised. And they become part of a movement of young American Jews, some of whose leaders we have interviewed on this podcast, that are working to redefine the relationship between American Jews and Israel, but maybe even more deeply, the relationship between Judaism and Israel. The film raises the question about whether there is a deepening generational divide over modern Jewish identity that goes actually very deep. The film Israelism debuted at the Big Sky Documentary Film Festival, where it was one of a small number of feature films nominated for Best Feature Documentary. Not too long afterward, it won Best Documentary at the Arizona International Film Festival, along with winning a Spirit Award at the Brooklyn International Film Festival. And not only does it win awards at big regular film festivals, those of you who care about Jewish film festivals should know that it also won the Audience Award at the recently completed 2023 San Francisco Jewish Film Festival, the oldest and largest Jewish film festival in the world. So today we welcome the two co-directors of Israelism, Eric Axelman and Sam Eilertsen. Eric Axelman is a filmmaker, and Sam Eilertsen is a cinematographer and editor. They are the co-founders of Tikkun Olam Productions, a nonprofit filmmaking collective that focuses on documenting and supporting movements for justice. Quick sidebar, Lex is a board member of Tikkun Olam Productions. And for both of these co-directors, Israelism is their directorial debut for a feature-length film. Eric Axelman and Sam Eilertsen are also collaborating on another upcoming feature-length film entitled Generation Green New Deal. And Sam Eilertsen is also directing a documentary series called Versus Goliath, which looks at frontline environmental justice activists. 
and it was selected for the prestigious CNN Film Independent 2023 docuseries Intensive. So without further ado, Eric Axelman, Sam Eilertsen, welcome to Judaism Unbounded. So great to have you. It is wonderful to be here. So it's often the case that some new piece of media, a book, a movie, something comes out and Lex and I get excited and we're like, we got to get this on the podcast immediately and we get that all set up and we release it. This is like the opposite of that case. I've been hearing about this movie for years and years and years and I'm always like, Lex, when is that movie coming out? We have to have this interview on the podcast. So finally, it's here. So that was not meant to be a criticism of your uh, slow work process. Uh, I, I really sympathize with it. But it's more a question of, like, why have you worked so many years on this movie? What is it that has driven you to create this movie? And, and what's it really about, in your words? Yeah, so in terms of how long, um, why it kind of took us so long to make this film. So Sam and I had this idea to really make kind of a documentary on the education and transformation of American Jews in regards to Israel-Palestine especially the really you know, immensely growing movements of young American Jews who are fighting the occupation and fighting for full Palestinian uh, rights in the land of Israel-Palestine. And it partly took us so long because it's Sam and I's directorial debut. Sam is an incredibly accomplished cinematographer and editor, but this is my first major film. And we also uh, got these really incredible Emmy-winning and Emmy-nominated uh, Jewish producers and mentors who really believed in this film. And I really saw this story as a unique um, story that could really help American Jews understand our very complicated and very quickly changing American Jewish relationship to Israel. And so basically, you know, we thought we were finished about three or four years ago, even, you know, four or five years ago sometimes. Sam and I kind of had this ongoing joke where we always thought we were like six months away from being finished. I can verify this. As yes. I went back to my text, I've got so many texts from you that are like, we're so excited. We're in the final stages and this will be coming out soon. And it was like 2017 that you said that. And here we are in 2023. There's this embarrassing photo of, of Sam and I with one of our executive producers, Geely, I think like yeah, like five years ago, being like, we're almost done finishing the edit right now. Um, but because we had these incredible mentors, we really realized that we were essentially going to work with their timeline and whatever they thought um, we were essentially going to go with. So we would keep sending them cuts, thinking that maybe this would be the one and they'd be like, you know, this is an OK film as it is right now. But it needs a lot more work if it's really going to be you know, a significant film. Um, and that was, you know, that was hard to hear. And then when uh, our main producer, Daniel J. Chalfin, about a year and a half ago was like, you finished, the film is done. We're like, if he says it's done, it's done. Yeah, part of the reason the film took us so long, and this is quite common in documentary filmmaking, is that we started not being entirely sure what film we were making. We knew it would be a film about American Jews' relationship to Israel, about Jews who are anti-Zionist or wrestling with Zionism or coming to terms with complicated feelings about Israel and Palestine. But um, it took us a little while to find which characters we wanted to focus on. So we did 80 interviews total with Jews of all different ideological perspectives and backgrounds. And it took us a while to kind of settle on a few folks to really feature whose stories we felt like represented a wider story. So Simone Zimmerman, who co-founded the organization, if not now, which is a group of um, young Jewish people sort of calling out community support of the occupation. And Eitan, who was a young Jew who went and joined the IDF right out of high school and then um, eventually took part in Breaking the Silence, um, which is an organization that Israeli veterans of the Israeli military speak out against the occupation. So after talking to many different people, we kind of 
settled on um, those two as being stories that sort of define a generational trajectory of young people who were raised to totally support Israel and everything, and also feeling like they weren't even super educated about any of the details of what Israel's relationship with the Palestinians is. And then at the same time, we also managed to get folks on the other side, like Abe Boxman and um, folks from Hillel and rabbis um, who were you know, very opposed to any sort of questioning of the pro-Israel sort of perspective and sort of feature the, that dichotomy within the film. I'd love to get into, you mentioned Simone Zimmerman and Eitan. They encapsulate a much broader story, and that's why you chose them. I'd love to hear that much broader story. And I'm going to break the fourth wall and say part of why I want to hear it is because I'm a selfish person, and, like all of us, and it's part of my story. And to flash back on this podcast quite a ways, I mean, we we had a number of episodes about Israel-Palestine or mostly about American Jews' relationship to Israel-Palestine in a similar way that that's the main flow of your movie. And um, I was part of, if not now, and I was part of some other organizations devoted to, you know, opening discourse from anti-Zionist to Zionist to everyone in between in Jewish life. And so I'd love to hear that broader story and to some extent, like the personal part of it, because it's not it's not just that like, ah, Eric and Sam diagnosed that there's this there are these people that seem to share. I, I know Eric and Sam because I went to college with you, um, that this is also personal for you. And so, like, what is that broader story that this film tries to distill? Yeah, I can talk about this one because it's in some ways my story, too. And it's also a story that I saw play out very personally amongst many of my friends and amongst kind of my broader um, college community, as well as Lex. I saw you transform. True. I got to break the news to Eric about a different film that their student group wanted to screen that we were not going to be able to screen it at Hillel. And that was actually a key moment for me because I did not think that I or anybody else should be (laughs) saying to my friends that we can't screen movies, it felt like censorship that it did not seem like the Jewishness, the Judaism that I stood for. Yeah. And it's pretty cool because that film, Boudreaux, I think you're talking about the film Boudreaux. Mm-hmm. Now we get to work with tons of the producers of Boudreaux. Our film is, is produced by people who actually worked on Boudreaux, which is pretty cool. I was initially interested in making this film because it is based roughly on my story. Not exactly. And, and my story is a bit different than Simone's or Aton's, but our trajectory and our transformation is in some way similar. So I grew up Jewish in rural Maine. Uh, so my parents were kind of back to land hippies who moved to Maine kind of, you know, in the same generation as Bernie Sanders and a lot of other Jewish folks moved to, you know, New Hampshire, Vermont, and Maine. I grew up, uh, our shul was about, you know, 20 miles from our house. I grew up in a town called Skowhegan, Maine. Um, my brother and I were the only uh, kids in our high school who went to Hebrew school. And, and you know, growing up, you know, being Jewish made me feel different. It made me feel othered. Um, I didn't experience kind of violent anti-Semitism, but it did make me feel different. And it was confusing, you know, being one of the only Jewish kids in my high school. And, you know, it was a overwhelmingly Christian and now, you know, very Trumpian uh, world that I grew up in. And so, you know, going to Hebrew school as, as, as a young, you know, 12 year old kid, our rabbi was in his seventies or eighties and it was just Torah, 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 right? Our, our Hebrew school was just Torah. And, you know, the kind of standard, you know, thing of Hebrew school was pretty boring. And I think that's a pretty, you know, normal and kind of, you know, classic story. And I, now I find the Torah fascinating and I love Jewish history. But I was really, as a young kid, kind of searching for a Jewish identity because the Jewish identity kind of given to me by my rabbi wasn't the most exciting one. For my bar mitzvah, I was given this book, Exodus, by Leon Uris, the kind of classic novel about the creation of Israel and about Zionism in general. And I'm queer. I realized that I was queer uh, in early high school. 
I was searching for an identity, uh, a, a, you know, a gender identity, a Jewish identity. And when I read this book by Leon Uris, Exodus, it painted this unbelievably grand and heroic picture of modern Judaism, of Zionism, of rising from the ashes of the Holocaust and, you know, creating a strong state where we could exist proudly as Jewish people. And for me, because again, my Jewish education was largely about, you know, historic texts and religious texts and ancient history that I didn't really relate to, this modern story of being a Jew was incredibly inspiring to me. I can be this strong, you know, modern Jewish person. I was in the closet and I was really trying to reject my my queerness. It was very difficult for me to process. And so it was also a very kind of masculine identity that I could kind of latch onto. And so I fell in love with Israel completely. And for a number of years, I just devoured everything I possibly could about Israel. I began wearing a Star of David necklace on my on my neck in rural Maine, and everyone had no idea what I was doing. Israel was my Jewish identity. Like many of the characters in our film say, you know, Israel is Judaism and Judaism is Israel. To me, Judaism was Israel. I have been doing documentary film stuff as an amateur my whole life. And so I was doing an independent study my senior year of high school with this incredible progressive teacher who just got away with teaching these crazy classes in this random public high school in rural Maine. <laughs> and so I was going to make a documentary in the history of Zionism, obviously a very pro you know, Zionism documentary. And my teacher, who was neither Jewish or Palestinian, just a very progressive guy, just asked me kind of point blank. He's like, Eric, do you know much about Palestinian history? No one had really forced kind of Israel-centric narratives on me. I'd really discovered it because people had just given me all these books from Abraham Mitzvah, and I'd fallen in love myself. So it wasn't really a threatening question. And I said, no, I don't really know anything about Palestinian history. Over the course of this year-long independent study, he just gave me all these um, left-wing Israeli historians and Palestinian historians, especially Tom Segev, the incredible Israeli historian. And it just totally opened my eyes. And I began to realize that this narrative that I had fallen in love with was in many ways a two-dimensional narrative. And it was a narrative that totally ignored the Palestinians and only viewed the Palestinians as an obstacle to Israeli dreams and didn't view Palestinians as actual equal human beings. I became really fascinated about why and how I'd fallen in love so strongly with that narrative that, like the kind of traditional American narrative, ignores the people who lived there before. Just like in Israel, it ignores the Palestinians. In America, our traditional narrative essentially ignores the Native Americans or simply views them as an obstacle. Uh, when I got to college, I met all these young Jewish people who, for their entire lives, Israel had been kind of the center of their Jewish identity. Um, whereas for me, I'd kind of discovered Israel or fallen in love with Israel when I was a teenager. To them, it was a huge part of their Jewish identity from their earliest beginnings. And a lot of them really came to campus thinking, kind of like our main character Simone did, that it was their job to defend Israel at all costs from people that they viewed as anti-Israel or even anti-Semitic uh, for fighting Israel or attacking Israel. And what I would see is that over and over and over again, these students who had never met Palestinians, who had never heard any Palestinian narratives, would inevitably meet Palestinian people. Um, they would meet Palestinian students, they would meet Palestinian professors, and they would come into contact with Palestinian narratives. And sometimes they were confused when this would happen, sometimes they were angry, but I would begin to see them transform. I saw so many young people realize that they had just not been told the full truth about the Palestinian people, and that this thing that they revered and loved so deeply, Israel, was a state that was founded on the displacement of another people, and that also Israel had been carrying out for decades upon decades upon decades a violent military occupation. And so many of them I began to see transform, and it was heartbreaking to see that, but also fascinating. And sometimes it would take them months or just a year to transform. Other times I saw these transformations take literally over a decade. 
And I realized that my own story and these people that I saw, including Lex, their transformation stories were part of this pretty incredible generational transformation that was occurring as more and more and more American Jews in mass realized that the narrative they had been told about Israel really didn't give dignity or consider Palestinians as fully equal human beings. And so it was fascinating to kind of see that transformation and realize that it was a generational transformation. And that's what kind of made us decide to make this film. I'm wondering, as you think about it, both of you, but as you think about this, like, what is the goal? Not not necessarily only of your film, but what what ought the goal be towards the people that we're talking about? The people like like you were, I guess I'm I'm curious as you see it, like, what is the nature of the problem that you're trying to address? Right. In other words, is, is the problem that like people have gotten Judaism confused with Israelism, as you say, and it's important for people to just step back and understand what is this all about? And maybe they'll come to different conclusions from you, right? Like I can imagine that somebody comes and says, look, it's a tragedy what's happened to the Palestinians, but all in all, it's it's what has to be because X, Y, and Z. But I'm curious, like, as you think about it and what really drives you or or what you think kind of like, if the Jewish community was really conducting itself in a different way, it would be better. That doesn't mean that everybody would agree with everything I say. And just as an example, I'll give you that I was once a professor at a Catholic law school, and one of my Catholic colleagues was adamant that nobody, no pro-choice speaker should ever be invited to speak at the law school. But I said to her, I just don't understand your strategy here, because it would seem to me that if I were in your position, which I'm not, but if I were an anti-choice person, I would be saying, let me get the best possible pro-choice speaker to come on the first day of law school so that I can have three years to argue against it. Right. But the idea of saying we're going to ban this perspective from our community is a recipe for Losing the war, winning the battle and losing the war, so to speak, because as soon as the people are exposed to that point of view, they won't know how to address it. And I guess for folks who are listening to this, who maybe disagree with you about the politics and about what should be, I mean, I want to also be speaking to them in this episode and saying that your strategy is not working. Your strategy is not able to work because it doesn't actually make sense pedagogically. You cannot have these bubbles of information like Hillel's policies and whatnot, where you are going to try to shield people from the realities of the world in which they live and hope that that's going to lead to a lifetime of political support. That doesn't work. So all in all, I'm wondering how you think about all of this whole situation that you're trying to impact and specifically how you may think that your film contributes to that. Yeah. I mean, I think to some extent it, it, it's a story. It's a piece of art. One film doesn't usually drastically change someone's perspective, although sometimes it does. Like we have gotten, you know, I've seen screenshots of texts that friends were sent like, oh, this film really changed my life, which is incredible. We love to see that. Um, but I think for mo- most people, I think the goal here is to open the conversation. Like you said, there's been this sort of very self-defeating attitude in the the pro-Israel side of the community of just shutting down debate. They've not successfully, but um, people have tried to cancel our screenings. You know, Lex alluded to the film that Eric wanted to bring to campus being canceled. You know, in some ways, there's no more intense cancel culture than practiced by these sort of right-wing Israel advocates. 
so I think the goal here is to, to open up the conversation to get people to, you know, through the stories of like the film was about Jews who grow up with a perspective that erases the Palestinians or portrays the Palestinians in a very simplistic and racist way. And then they actually encounter and meet real people who are Palestinians and it totally changes their perspective. Like that's sort of the film in a nutshell. And I think the goal here is to try to inspire and challenge audiences that might not agree with us on every issue. And that's fine to try to do that. Like actually talk to Palestinians. Don't just live in this sort of pro-Israel bubble of ignoring the issues and also for folks who are already on sort of the more pro-Palestinian or challenging the Israeli government side to sort of help tell the story of their work and show them that they're not alone. Like I think a, another reaction we've gotten commonly from audience members is, you know, oh, for so many years, I, I felt really alone that I was the only one in my community that, um, that felt this way. And I think this film sort of helps open the door and show people that this is actually a very common perspective, you know, 25% according to one survey of American Jews, consider Israel's actions to be constitute apartheid and a much larger percent, almost 40% of, uh, I believe, Jews under 30 feel the same way. You know, even if it is to some extent still a minority view in the community, it's a, a significant minority view. A lot of what we're trying to do is show the larger American Jewish community that this is happening in mass. As Sam said, there is a massive movement that's been accelerating very, very quickly that realizes that Israel's policies in the West Bank are very literally apartheid. When people say, you know, this isn't apartheid, I, I ask people, how do you define apartheid? Like, what is apartheid to you? you know, apartheid very basically is two sets of people, two legal systems, and that's very literally what the situation is in the West Bank. And so I think what we want to show American Jews is that you know, this movement is happening. Whether you like it or not, many American Jews feel this way and it's only accelerating. And as Sam said, for younger Jews, we're going to get to the point, and we might already be there for Jews under 30, we don't have that polling, where we're going to have a situation where 50% of younger Jews believe that Israel's actions constitute apartheid. We also want to show the broader American world that Jews of conscience realize that it's critical and truly necessary to fight for Palestinian rights, and that doing so while also fighting anti-Semitism is possible and a moral necessity, and that we have to fight for both Palestinian rights and equality, while also equally fighting against the vile anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that have increased dramatically, especially the past decade, and that we have to fight for people who, unfortunately, our own people are oppressing, while also fighting the incredibly dangerous anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that once again put our lives and the Jewish experience worldwide into danger. So I'm really interested in a couple characteristics, Eric, of your story that you shared. But Eric, what's so interesting to me about your story is you were in rural Maine, and the story was not that you were part of some apparatus of youth group or camp or fill in the Jewish institution that had classrooms that told you X, Y, or Z about Israel being awesome and hammered home talking points. That was my story from Sunday school through my youth group, through summer camp. Even though it wasn't your story, I'm curious to like note or chronicle, hear from the two of you, what some of those things are that Jewish communal institutions do that really enshrine Israel as the religion, Israelism. Like, what does that look like in different contexts? And 
uh, and I want to use the, a word that does come up in your film, which is indoctrination. I do feel that I was indoctrinated. I, I try not to use the term brainwashed because I think that is like an extra level of intense. I, I'm not sure I think it's wrong though, but I'm certain that indoctrinate is right. But for me, it was within a set of institutions that like literally on the walls, I had paraphernalia about like we stand with Israel no matter what. Um, and when I say around the walls, like literal classroom walls and at my summer camp, the climbing wall that you would climb up was a map of Israel and all around camp. I mean, there was no distinction in my mind between supporting certain kinds of political nationalism and also hearing from Israeli counselors at my camp about the threat that Palestinians posed and interchanging Palestinians sometimes with terrorists. And so part of my question is like, can you talk to us about what actually happens in those institutional contexts? But because, Eric, your experience was largely not through that, it was through like a book that you were given, although I guess the book was for a bar mitzvah gift. So it's interesting how it ties to whatever institution your bar mitzvah was at. But like, what are the ways in which this story of people like me and like others who feel like we only got half the narrative, like, what does that look like? Afterwards, we can start to look forward to like, what would the world be where it's different? Yeah, that's a great question. And so, as you mentioned, so that was not the world that I grew up in, right? So, I really fell in love with the narrative itself, but the narrative wasn't pushed on me. Again, I fell in love with that narrative so intensely that I became really fascinated in that narrative. And when I got to college, I realized that that narrative that I had fallen in love with was actually an institutionalized narrative for so many, the great majority of the Jewish you know, people that I met, almost all the young Jewish kids I met from their earliest memories. And I think my realization about how in some ways disturbing that could be was when I began realizing how much the Israeli military was actually a massive part of those institutions and of these kids' lives. And I began realizing, you know, Facebook was was huge when Sam and I were in college and Lex and I were in college. And I remember seeing, you know, meeting all these amazing friends and looking at their Facebook photos from when they were kids and seeing all of these pictures of them with Israeli soldiers and realizing that Israeli soldiers played this kind of heroic role for a lot of American Jews and that kind of the glamorization and the kind of cultural worship of the Israeli military and of Israeli soldiers was a major part of a lot of young American Jewish kids' lives. A lot of these Jewish kids I met had been encouraged to actually join the Israeli military. And many of the kids, some of the kids I actually met in college had joined the Israeli military. So I met a number of folks at Brown who had just got to Brown after getting back from the Israeli military. And I began wondering, you know, how and why are American Jewish schools encouraging 18-year-old kids, kids to join a foreign military that I knew at that point was carrying out an illegal military occupation of foreign land. And I became fascinated and I and just kind of shocked by this realization that these very normal seeming schools and camps and Hebrew schools were literally encouraging kids to join a foreign military. And that was a really big eye-opening moment for me to realize that there's something pretty messed up going on here. Yeah. yeah. And just to give some color to that, we had like IDF obstacle course, uh, IDF being the Israeli exactly. military, um, Israeli Defense Force is what it stands for. Literally, we'd have Israel days, we'd have all sorts of Israel stuff, which you could read as just, okay, you know, there's Israeli counselors here and we're building a cultural connection. But then like, 
some of the most consistent activities were like mock military drills. And then you'd have the conversation at the end about how meaningful it is to serve Israel. And like my, my camp actually, I think, was on a fairly moderate end of the spectrum. Like friends of mine, I, I know the Facebook photos you're talking about. And like, it's not just that there's photos of them with soldiers, it's that they're like holding weapons and like learning to shoot them on their on their gap years. It's like really intense. And I, I know I'm not saying anything that many of our listeners isn't already familiar with, but like I had never actually sat with how wild that was. No, definitely. Yeah. And again, you know, my high school, so again, I went to a, a public high school in rural Maine. Many young Americans in my high school joined the American military. They were indoctrinated as well. So again, when I'm talking about indoctrination, I'm not saying that this is a uniquely American Jewish thing. Many young Americans in my high school literally went to occupy Iraq and Afghanistan and knew literally nothing about Iraq or Afghanistan. And similarly, what I realized is that a lot of our institutions are really encouraging and telling young kids that it's the most incredible thing they can do to join a foreign military. And these kids are going to literally occupy Palestine and occupy the West Bank, and they literally have never met a Palestinian. I met all these young Jewish kids who had literally just got back from the military and had PTSD because they had been thrown in as kids, right? These are literally kids into a brutal military occupation in which they realized that they were enforcers of a discriminatory system. And realizing that was incredibly eye-opening to me. And and when I kind of looked at it, I tried to look at it objectively, I realized that this is that so many of the schools, a major part of their academic world was Israel advocacy. So many of them had literal classes about how to advocate for Israel, not about how to understand Israel and learn about Israel but literally to advocate for Israel and that it was truly a given that we're not here to learn about this conflict. We are here to defend Israel at all costs and that we have to defend Israel from the lies people are telling us without actually learning anything about Palestinian history. Some of the things that really struck me, for example, were you know hearing that people are still being taught the phrase, a land without a people for a people without a land, which there's nothing that more sums up absolute erasure of the very existence of Palestinians than that phrase. And it's, I mean, it's very reminiscent to me of slogans that were used to um, encourage people to settle in the American West during the genocide of the Native American people. It's shocking to me that, the, that this phrase is still being taught. And also just seeing, I mean, in the film, there's, we have all this video from, um, that's mostly video that Jewish day schools and camps, you know, posted themselves online voluntarily of, all these little kids marching around with like carrying flags with flags in their heads and, you know, doing these military games in camp. And I think the interesting thing is the American Jewish community, particularly like reforming conservative communities tend to be very liberal on so many political issues. And I think are often very uncomfortable with sort of like over the top American patriotism. I think a lot of Jewish people are certainly, I mean, my parents were, um, very involved in the anti-Vietnam War protest movement. So I, I was always raised to be sort of like suspicious of over-the-top flag-wavy patriotism. And I think a lot of American Jewish families would be pretty uncomfortable with their kids being paraded around waving American flags or, you know, going to camps where they were doing like ROTC-type programs. But the same things are happening in their Jewish days, wills, and camps just with the Israeli flag and the Israeli military. So I really appreciated the opportunity to watch your movie a couple of days ago, and I really appreciate this conversation, even though 
I don't agree with everything in the movie and I don't agree with everything in this conversation. And I'm so grateful for the movie to exist so that we can have this conversation. And I just want to say that really clearly because there are things in the movie that are hard to see that are emotional. And there are times in the movie where I said, oh, I wish that you had had a little bit about why Israeli policies towards the Palestinians emerged. And some of that is because of believing things that were not true, like a land without a people and a people without a land and and that kind of thing. But some of it is because there actually has been a violent conflict, right? You know, so I I think that there's a lot of nuance and a lot of things to to discuss. And And I felt myself at a certain moment wishing that there was a little bit more in there just so that it would kind of paint the picture. But I don't know that you have to do that. I want to say that, like, for me, uh, experiencing the film was valuable simply because it got me thinking. And I'm sad that there are a lot of people out there who, A, will not watch this film on, on principle, and B, that if they watched it, they would get kind of so angry about something that they would walk out or they would just kind of say that this is, this is tendentious, this is, you know, this is, these are anti-Semites who made this movie, you know, whatever they're going to say. And one of my takeaways from our last series of episodes that we did on on Israel-Palestine was that we should not have red lines about what we can talk about and that we shouldn't call Jews anti-Semites. Now, my real question is, why can we not have conversations about this? And this is where I felt that you're calling the film Israelism is very helpful to me as I think about this, because in my mind, that Israelism was in contrast to Zionism. And I was thinking like, oh, yeah, I mean, like there's a way of thinking that Zionism kind of we've talked about are are people Zionists or not Zionists. And sometimes like I've had this feeling like, look, Zionism succeeded in its mission. Like there's a state of Israel. It exists. So let's talk about something else. Like it's not am I Zionist? Am I not a Zionist? It's like what's going on in Israel? And am I for that against that? What do I think should happen? You know, that to have a word like Zionism, are you a Zionist or not a Zionist kind of puts the people into these boxes that are not useful to the conversation. I thought maybe you were contributing uh, Israelism as a more contemporary idea that asks, are you are you an Israelist or not an Israelist, whatever that might might mean. But I actually think Israelism contrasted to Judaism is a very fascinating notion because as I'm listening to you talk, what I'm hearing is there is a subset of the Jewish community, and it's not all people who support Israel, for whom it really functions as their religion. I think that because we have not identified that issue clearly, we are confusing two groups of people. There are the people who, whose religion is fundamentally Judaism, who believe that Israel is an important part of that religion and that story, and they care about Israel, and they want Israel to, to be successful. They also say there may be tragic choices and maybe they've been misled. Maybe they've been told wrong history and maybe they think there are more tragic choices than there really are. But ultimately, it's part of my Judaism. There are other people who I think maybe their Judaism is part of their Israelism and they don't quite understand that themselves and they don't even understand themselves that way. And I think they would be resistant to it being said about them. But at the same time, like I would, I would want them to step back a little and say, hey, maybe, maybe I am an Israelist. Maybe that is my religion. And if it's your religion, then I say, like, yeah, the reason why you might think that when you graduate from high school, you should serve in the IDF is maybe a similar reason to why Mormons would go on a Mormon mission, because it's their religion. And that's what their religion tells them to do at this age. And it's also and, why you can't have opponents. It's like if you're in a yeah. church, you don't expect non-Jesus believers to go up in front of the room and talk about how Jesus is not the Messiah. And those people in Jewish spaces, they think that having an anti-Zionist speak it to the room is like, it's just anti the room. 
Yeah, and that's why when somebody kind of is against Israel, then they'll call that person an anti-Semite. That's probably the wrong word. I mean, that's definitely the wrong word. But in a sense, they're saying, like, you're anti-my religion. That's where I'm finding your film both super helpful and also super confusing in terms of, of thinking through what are its implications for those for whom Israel is their religion. And the problem is, is that the Jewish community writ large has not made this distinction. So it's lumping in the people whose religion is Israelism and the people whose religion is Judaism, but Israel is a big part of that as the same group. And they're actually different. To go back to sort of like the meaning of the term Israelism, I mean, I think you summed it up pretty well. It wasn't always like this in the community. I mean, first of all, like before the Holocaust and the War of 1948, most American Jews and most Jews around the world were not Zionists. But even in the period, you know, after the War of 48, when the American Jewish community did become quite Zionist, it still wasn't, it still, Israel didn't still occupy this sort of super central role in the community. Like there was a, an Israeli flag in every synagogue and where it was being constantly mentioned in sermons and you know, all the things we've been talking about in terms of education and day schools, et cetera, et cetera. Interestingly enough, it was largely in the 60s and 70s. A lot of people talk about 67 being a big moment, but there were sort of an array of social courses where, you know, a lot of institutional discrimination against Jews had broken down. The Jewish community was kind of secularizing. It was like a lot of immigrant communities assimilating to some extent and also worrying about assimilation, worrying about his children assimilating, worrying about children intermarrying and sort of disappearing from Judaism altogether. And Israelism, as as we think about it, this use of Israel as a glue to keep American Jews together um, was sort of invented as a way to keep people within the Jewish community, even if they didn't necessarily, even though they weren't necessarily into the actual faith part of it. It was sort of seen as a, a way to create a secular Jewish identity. Um, and this was, in some cases, very explicit, like birthright. Some of the founders of birthright had said that birthright was created primarily as a way to get young Jews to sort of meet each other and marry within the faith. So it was actually sort of created not just to sort of promote uh, American Jewish support of Israel, but also to promote the American Jewish community sort of staying together in the way that those people and those forces wanted to see it um, do that. And so I think that's something a question that I think a lot of us on the, on the left are wrestling with is how do we keep a Jewish identity not centered around Israel? Um, I think a lot of folks are actually very interested in exploring more and reinventing more sort of traditional practices and religious aspects. I think also for a lot of us, the Jewish tradition of, of social justice activism is a huge part of our Jewish identity. It's summed up most of all by a Hillel educator who interviewed for the film says, Judaism is Israel and Israel is Judaism. And she says, well, some people can, can separate it, but for me, there's no divide. She also says something that's, that's very important, which is she says, Israel isn't political for me. There are politics about Israel, but Israel isn't political. And I think that is the challenge to reaching um, the segment of the community that you were talking about, Dan. When you try to make support of a specific state and its policies, not like, you can't escape the politics of that. Um, but I think, in some ways, Zionism it's hard to it's hard to make it a useful term anymore because it can refer to such a broad spectrum. Whereas, you know, with Israelism, we're trying to sort of talk very specifically about like how are we using Israel to supplement or replace 
other forms of Jewish identity? And then how is that resulting in a sort of um, destructive one-sided support of a particular political state that's taking particular political actions that you, you can't erase or ignore the consequences of that? I want to sit with this point about religion and whether Israelism is a religion. I mean, people who listen to this show a lot will know, I, I think a lot of things are religion. And so I think that for some people, their relationship to sports fandom is a form of religious practice. And it has holidays and legends and stories passed down and inter- and and ties communities together. Like, And I think pop culture can be a form of religious experience and the ways people relate to certain celebrities and big shows. And again, also, you know, calendrical moments like the Emmys or the Oscars. Like, I, I don't think it's like saying, oh, there's the, saying that Israelism is a form of religious practice, that people who are like really into advocating for Israel, saying that it's religion. I don't think that inherently is like us slamming it. What's what's me slamming? I'll speak for me. Like, I think it's a religion that is actively doing a lot of harm. This religion piece, this idea that Support for Israel as a nation state is, in fact, the crux of people's identity more than other Jewish things, that it becomes this secular form of Judaism. I want to be clear that my problem with that is not that it's a secular form. I'm not here to say like, oh, oh, it's taking away from Torah. It's taking away from the religious side. I just think that it's doing harm. And what I want to say about the harm, it is absolutely harming Palestinians. But what also happens is when we define Judaism and Zionism or Israelism interchangeably, and we say that's all kind of one soup of one religion, we actually create an out for people in the field of anti-Semitism. Because we live in a world where if you say to somebody not Jewish, you know, XYZ might be anti-Semitic, a common response is, I love Israel. Like, that's not logical. It doesn't make sense from a framework where anti-Semitism would be about something that endangers Jews as people. That's giving folks an easy out when they might actually be doing things that are harming Jewish people, that are endangering our lives. This is not a joke. This is not just about the, like, people love to say, oh, it's just about what happens across the ocean and so we should shut our mouths. No, I live in a country and I've lived in areas of the country. I lived in Mississippi for a few years where I was surrounded by people and I would introduce myself as Jewish and I would wear a yarmulke and they'd come up to me and say the first thing to me at a random coffee shop, I love Israel and I support and I'm a member of Christians United for Israel. As if I should feel good about that. No, Christians United for Israel, for people not familiar with it, is absolutely intertwined with all sorts of long-term goals to get Jews in Israel for theological reasons that actually involve Jews en masse no longer being Jews or maybe dying. Um, it's not so good. And so I want to talk a little bit about the, the, the then what's of this conflation. Why is it that conflating Israel advocacy with Judaism is bad? Like, what are the problems with that? Yeah, I think one thing, and you know, to, to to build off what Sam was saying, is that the the Hillel educator that we've been talking about. At one point, she says, "You know, can you separate Israel and Judaism?" I don't know. I can't. And she says, "Israelism is my identity. Israel is my identity." What's scary about that, as kind of Sam said, is that Israel is a real place. Israel, like many countries around the world, has committed crimes, and virtually every Palestinian person I know, their parents or their grandparents were ethnically cleansed from their homes, virtually everyone I know. Um, and many of those people are still alive. So when people say 
Israel is my religion, essentially. It's like, well, your religion is based on a state that has done true harm to many people. And again, I understand why so many people feel the need to have a strong Jewish state because of the unimaginable oppression that we Jews have gone through. And there are so many people who grew up in a world where Jews were not safe, and they felt that Israel was truly necessary for their safety. But the creation of Israel has made Palestinians unsafe. If this is your identity, your identity is based around a very flawed state that has caused real harm to millions of people. And we think that people really need to reckon with not the kind of rosy story of Israel that we kind of tell ourselves about, again, rising from the ashes of the Holocaust and kind of reforming our ancient homeland. It's kind of a religious kind of story we tell ourselves. That story had real life consequences for millions and millions of people. And we need to recognize that. And we need to have real serious conversations about the fact that when we created a Jewish state, we made a Palestinian state essentially impossible. Our self-determination has come at the expense of another people's self-determination. I believe that all human lives are fundamentally equal. And while I very much understand you know, why many Jewish folks wanted a state and wanted self-determination, because we were a diasporic people at no fault of our own, if we wanted to create a state, it was essentially going to be at the expense of other people. I wanted to also just jump on another point Lex made, which is that in addition to the fact that our communities blind or overwhelming support of the state of Israel has come at a great cost to Palestinians, there's also a cost to us in the sense that, you know, real serious anti-Semitism is being glossed over or ignored or minimized because people in the community perceive that the person who's making that anti-Semitic statement or action as being supportive or valuable to the state of Israel. I mean, Donald Trump is a really clear example, making a lot of anti-Semitic tropes and, um, and encouraging this horrible, right, nightmare for Jewish people. And at the same time, you know, constantly using his support for Israel as a shield um, and it's become a pattern for a lot of Republican politicians. Of, you know, they, they say or do something that's actually anti-Semitic, and then their response is, well, look at all the things I've done for Israel. Um, and most recently, we saw this with RFK Jr. used this sort of very classic anti-Semitic trope of that COVID was engineered to not harm Jews in the same way that it harms other people. And then his response and people's defense of him was all about how much he supports Israel, which is just like, like, like you were saying, like, it defies all logic. One thing has nothing to do with the other. Supporting a government and a nation state has nothing to do with whether you have bigotry towards a particular group of people. And we've seen this rise within the white nationalist movement in recent years of white nationalists who actually don't like Jews, but they like and admire Israel as a state. And they're like, we want America to basically be Israel, but for white Christians. Yeah, like, there's a long tradition of anti-Semites specifically liking Israel because they actually are thrilled that there would be a place that Jews exit their place from and go to. Like, like that's not the only form of anti-Semitism, but there, that is one strand of historic anti-Semitism going back to Europe and it's popping up now. Exactly. So I so appreciate this. And for folks curious how to actually watch this. We're going to have in our show notes on our website information about upcoming screenings. But I I have practical questions about Israel-Palestine discourse in all sorts of Jewish institutions. Who can talk? What can they talk about? Who can they talk with? 
who can, who can be a co-sponsor of things. And there's this whole web of different policies and ideas about what that should look like. And I just, I want to take a second to name that part of that does boil down to red lines, which is a phrase that Dan used. And what it means is that it is very normal. We take for granted that it is actually just an everyday run-of-the-mill thing that Local Jewish institutions of a wide variety of kinds, synagogues, federations, Hillel's, JCC's, whatever, do not permit some Jews to speak there and do not permit certain films created by Jews around Jewish purposes to show there. That is a different thing from like, oh, we just, you know, we don't have a hard and fast policy, but like we, we welcome whoever we welcome. Like it is actually institutional policy in many spots to not permit folks who question Zionism in some cases, in other cases who are actively anti-Zionist. Sometimes it's about membership affiliations. If people are a member of Jewish Voice for Peace, or they're a member of If Not Now, or they're connected to Students for Justice in Palestine or they're connected to, I mean, there's all these guilt by association levels. Like we can make a whole taxonomy of different ways that this operates. And what's interesting about it is you're actually kind of experiencing some of it because you're a film and you're looking to screen in different local communities. And some Jewish communities have been receptive and excited. Some academic communities have been excited and receptive. Some secular communities, others have not. And so to close, I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit just about how we understand the boundaries of Judaism. We're called Judaism Unbound, right? Like, so we think about boundaries of Jewish experience and Jewish life. Why might it be ill-advised for us to spend so much of our communal effort and time on barring our own constituents from participating in conversations or from presenting their ideas? Uh, by the way, I've had I've had events canceled where, that were not even about Israel. Like I've had guest speaker gigs where I was there to talk about like interfaith families, or I was there to talk about the Torah portion, and those events get canceled because I have been a part of If Not Now. I was not there to talk about If Not Now or Israel Palestine at all, but that's the way we operate. And so I'm curious as we close if you can think about what that does to our communities and why it's harmful. And the, the last piece is, y'all made a film. You didn't do any number of other things that you could have done. Why, given your passion about, I know you're both filmmakers, so that's like part of the answer, but like, why does it matter to have films that are chronicling this and not just a flurry of think pieces and kiddish conversations and debates in boardrooms? Like, why do we need films to answer your first question about censorship and having conversations in these spaces, I mean, the classic phrase that we all know is two Jews, three opinions, right? It's actually very contrary to our tradition and our culture as Jews to try to shut down arguments and not have arguments and not allow arguments. Space is starting to open up because the current Israeli government has become so over the top right wing and not just oppressing Palestinians, but even undermining democracy for Israeli Jews. There are a lot of spaces that wouldn't have welcomed this film five years ago that might welcome this film now. I'm looking forward to that. And to answer your second question of why a film, I mean, I, <laughs> I'm a filmmaker, so um, it, was, it was my way of expressing myself, but also I would say that 
film is a medium that can bring the story to a, a really wide range of people and not just have these conversations concentrated in the pages of like Jewish magazines and newspapers. And our hope is that through doing all these in-person screenings in various spaces, we can bring it to a really wide range of audiences from many different Jewish communities and Palestinian audiences and an American audience as well. I mean, I think from the perspective of a lot of organizations, if Israel is central to their identity and if venerating Israel is central to their identity, then learning about the terrible things Israel has done becomes essentially a major threat to the identity of the community, something that's dangerous to the community. And when that happens, it means that young people are not learning the really basic facts about what's actually happened. And why that's dangerous is that they are going to find out. Young Jewish people, the internet exists, Palestinian people exist, and young people are going to find out, and they are finding out. That's why 38% of Jews under 40 consider Israel to be an apartheid state, because they have looked, they have many of them have visited the West Bank. And when you see it, when you actually see what's happening, again, I never thought 15 years ago, I would call Israel an, an apartheid state. But when you see it, it is apartheid. When you deny people this really basic information about real facts about what Israel is actually doing, they are inevitably going to find out and they are going to be extremely angry and feel betrayed and feel lied to because they're going to realize that their educational institutions deprive them of extremely basic information about the nature of the state of Israel. That's what's incredibly dangerous about this censorship of Palestinian narratives is that people are going to find out and they are going to rebel. And that is what's happening. That is why there's such a massive transformation occurring within our communities. And in terms of why we decided to make a film, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the book Exodus by Lynn Urris is what started me on this journey. And it made me realize that, you know, pieces of art can have a profound impact on shaping narrative. In some ways, I want this film to kind of play the opposite role of Exodus in terms of really opening up space and exploring the narrative of American Jews actually learning about the plight of the Palestinians. Because I so personally have been so profoundly influenced by both individual pieces of art, books, as well as films. Again, Lex, you know, I, I as you know, I, I organized both a Palestinian as well as an Israeli-Palestinian film festival while in college. There's been so many incredible films in Israel-Palestine. That have inspired me so much, it made me want to kind of make a film like this that could kind of help explain the stories of my generation and the transformations occurring in my generation. Thank you so much to both of you for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you, guys. Now, this is, again, Judaism Unbound is such a special place, and you guys are able to really host such incredible conversations about all aspects, you know, of Jewish life and Jewish culture. And it's an honor to, you know, to be here. And, and again, Lex, thank you for being on this journey with us. Again, you know, your and my journeys, you know, have happened at similar times. Uh, and it's been so cool to get to see you welcome conversations about this difficult topic. And thanks so much to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation, and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. A reminder that we've got our Elul three-week mini-course with Wendy Bernstein-Lash that is starting in just a few days. You don't want to miss it. Head to judaismunbound.com slash classes to learn more and register. It's going to be such an amazing experience. We also, of course, want to close our episode in the same way that we always do by encouraging you to be in touch with us, and there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages. All of those are at Judaism Unbound for our handles. Second, there's our website, judaismunbound.com, where you can find show notes for this episode and all our others. 
and also information about the Onyeshiva, amazing other resources too, and our Elul Unbound initiative, which takes place this time of year. That's at judaismunbound.com slash Elul specifically. And if you have questions or comments or ideas or visions or arguments or anything, you can always email us at dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. The last request we like to make is that we deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation that you're able to send our way, which you can do via judaismunbound.com slash donate. So thanks so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.